Today, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Amy Jeffs and Dr. Mary Wellesley, two fascinating historians. Dr. Wellesley earned her doctorate from UCL, studying the manuscripts of the Benedictine monk and poet John Lidgett. She worked in the Department of Ancient, Medieval and Early Modern Manuscripts at the British Library and continues to teach courses on medieval language and literature. She's described as a born storyteller by the author Dan Jones, and her book Hidden Hands was described by David Dimbleby as a refreshing and original version of who we once were. Welcome to Nonfic Pod, Mary. Hi, thank you for having me. And Dr. Amy Jeffs is an art historian specialising in the Middle Ages. In 2019, she gained her PhD in art history from Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, and worked as a postdoctoral fellow at the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art, having worked in the British Museum and at the British Library. She also writes for Country Life magazine. So my first question to both of you is, I was struck in both Storyland and Hidden Hands about how modern our idea is of sole authorship and this sort of one great person writing books. I was struck both by the story of Marjorie Kemp and her search for an amanuensis uh, in your book, Mary. And of course, in Storyland, these myths are emergent tellings and retellings. How do you both feel? Are you more of the uh, great individual scribing away at the at the coalface uh, idea of authorship? Or do you see it as more of a collective endeavour? Mary, can I go first? Go ahead. <laughs> Um, so I was my my thinking is that um, I mean one of the things that I come across a lot in uh, in sort of the pub, on the publicity train for Storyland is an idea of of these stories being like being kind of uh, having the aura of folklore that they have emerged out of this kind of pure authentic something uh, told around firesides and and that sort of thing and actually my um, perception of them is that they were produced. In the text that they survive in for very specific patrons by specific authors like Geoffrey of Monmouth writing and dedicating his History of the Kings of Britain to the Earl of Gloucester and really writing to the time that he lived in with that history. Um, and so there is, because you've got this kind of monastic environment, he was, he's a cleric and uh, there is, he, he, he says he's, he's, writing this um history based on an ancient book in the british tongue he he he's also um playing into this aura of this ancient authentic history that he's retelling he's just the mouthpiece for this this amazing story but really what we think now is that he had a whole load of um of chronicles at his disposal probably in a monastic library things like Bede and uh, Gildas and there's a historian called um, Nennius who we think wrote uh, a history of Britain as well from the ninth century and that he also assembled a text from a very you know bookish um assemblage of of sources so uh i think i'm quite happy in in relation to some of these texts to talk about a single author but of course you it becomes more complicated when you then look at copies in manuscripts and how those are abridged and whether that's by the scribe or is it at the behest of a patron and you know that then the whole the whole thing um kind of kaleidoscopes and it becomes much more complicated and you'd mentioned that uh you and mary worked back to back in the british library yes yeah i was very lucky to meet mary during i had an internship at the british library working on uh, the polonsky foundation england and france project it was digitizing 800 manuscripts at the british library and the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, um, all dating to the period 700 to 1200. So I was doing that. I was sitting in a sort of cubicle 
back to back with um, this formidable scholar, Mary Wellesley, who was working on the Discovering Literature project, uh, all about Middle English literature. Uh, Mary, correct me if I've um, sort of garbled that. You garbled the part where you called me a formidable scholar. <laughs> <laughs> you are. Well, it was just so inspiring because Mary was, um, as well as as well as um, you know, doing academic papers on uh, Lydgate, and uh, I went to the uh, Senate House to listen to her one evening. You were also writing for Apollo and working on stuff for the LRB, and it sort of opened up a world where I realised that what we what we were studying, the manuscripts were fascinating and not just to a small group of scholars but actually that with the right attitude you can communicate that to a wider audience and you know that that was brilliantly inspiring working with Mary there. I'd love to come in on the point about authorship as well just briefly and say that I think it's actually really important to throw out this very modern notion of the single sole authorial genius because I think that in thinking about authorship in those terms, what we end up doing is erasing the contributions of all kinds of other people. And there was a wonderful book published last year by Bloomsbury Academic by Diane Watt, where she talks about female authorship and the female authorship of the earliest texts from England. And one of the points that she makes is that authorship was frequently collaborative in the medieval period. And if we decide to only think about authors as these kind of single figures, we're forgetting the contributions of so many people. And crucially, we're forgetting the contributions often of women who perhaps acted as patrons or um, provide provided testimony or texts which then informed uh, an author when they're producing a text or they worked collaboratively with other authors. So I think it's it's crucial that we forget about this idea of, of the author as this kind of person sitting alone in a garret working on a great work of genius because it just doesn't apply in the Middle Ages. I'd love to just comment on that because I think it's the the lone genius. I mean, that is that's rubbish. Whatever period you're looking at, I mean, I noticed that um, Jared McInnes has re- recently written a book called The Coward, and I noticed that he puts a list of credits at the end of his book, including the proofreader, the um, editor, everybody, so that he he wants to emphasize that he didn't write it alone, um, and it, that's so similar, I think, to. Uh, to medieval texts like Geoffrey Gaymar's History of the English. Um, and so you, that, exactly what Mary was saying. Absolutely agreeing with you there. So there is a, talking to brilliant scholar Mary, um, <laughs> there is in, in, in the book, um, one of those extremely human stories is that of Marjorie Kemp. Would you mind telling us a bit about you know how her story came to be captured and why her life matters and also what happened to her story for a while in which she was essentially edited out of her own tale. Yeah, so the story of Marjorie Kemp is a really fantastic one. And it would be remiss of me to talk about Marjorie Kemp without first talking about the story of the discovery of the only known manuscript which contains her text. Uh, In 1934, a family called the Butler Bowdens were playing a game of ping pong and they lost a ball. And so they decided to go to a, a nearby cupboard and look for further ping pong balls. And there, on opening the cupboard, this what was described as a kind of entirely undisclosed disciplined clutter of books fell out. And one of the books uh, had this rather unprepossessing mouse-eaten cover. And it turned out to be the only known copy of the book of Marjorie Kemp. 
The Book of Marjorie Kemp is the first piece of autobiographical writing in English. It's really an extraordinary text. Uh, It describes the life of this woman, uh, Marjorie Kemp, who uh, grew up in in Lynn, now Kings Lynn, in in Norfolk. She was, uh, she worked variously as a um, a horse mill operator, as a brewer. She was the mother of 14 children. She later had these um, spiritual visions and became what's called a vowess. But I think one of the things that's really wonderful about Kemp's text, I always say that its extraordinariness lies in its ordinariness, because so often it's the voices of a regal or an ecclesiastical elite that come down to us from the Middle Ages. But Kemp is an ordinary kind of middle class woman. And crucially, she was illiterate. Uh, and she was only able to get her text recorded with the help of an amanuensis, i.e. a scribe who heard her words and, and wrote them down. In fact, she made four different attempts, um, some of them ill-fated. But it's a very moving story about a woman's determination to have the story of her life recorded. And what's even more moving is that until the discovery of the only known manuscript in 1934, the only version of the text that was circulating was a series of heavily abbreviated printed extracts, which were printed by Winkin de Word, who who inherited the printing shop from William Caxton, uh, England's first printer. And in that version of the text, Marjorie's voice has been stripped out. And all that remains are the moments in the text when Christ speaks to Marjorie. And thereby she becomes this passive, weeping woman. Whereas the great joy of the text as we see it in the manuscript version is this lively woman who boisterously communicates her her devotion. And it's a wonderful story that illustrates the preciousness of manuscripts without which so many important stories would be lost to us. Well, I'm so glad that you shared that in Hidden Hands and reading about her experiences postpartum and how she then went to spend time with other women who had these sort of postpartum, I guess what we'd recognise now as something akin to psychosis maybe, um, but that her talking about her life and the way in which that was considered disposable for so long. I'm so glad that that was mm-hmm. rediscovered in this undisciplined mass of books, which basically describes my entire house. Um, <laughs> there are other marginalised figures that come out of um, both the the stories, the foundational myths of Britain, and the and the manuscripts that you look at. I I was really interested in the stories of the hot stones that come all the way from Africa and how deeply embedded that is in in British foundational myths, and also the black figures that appear in manuscripts, either in illustration or possibly as uh, as patrons. Uh, Would, Mary, if I can go to you first about some of the figures that you found in margins and how much we know and how much we need to conjecture in order to understand the place of these these non-white figures in British history. Yeah, so it's very difficult to piece together uh, evidence about people of colour in medieval Britain. Um, We're reliant mainly on archaeological evidence. But what I love is that manuscripts offer these little glimpses, um, sometimes only suggestions of a life now long receded. Um, In the book, I talk about a couple of instances where we see marginal Uh, illustrations of people of colour. And I find them very, very moving. Um, I also talk about 
um, this extraordinary Jewish poet called Mir bin Elijah, who um, was from the Jewish community in um, in Norwich. And he writes this haunting poetry, much of it about the kind of persecution that he and his community suffered in the kind of decade just before the expulsion of the Jews. So I think this is a kind of amazing thing about manuscripts is that they connect us to these lives in the past. And importantly, they connect us to the stories of people who we might not necessarily hear about in our conventional histories. And Amy, um, when reading uh, Storyland, hearing about it's the idea that there's these British foundational myths, they draw from all points of the compass. How does it feel to be looking at essentially this web reaching out into a wider world in order to define what this nation has become? Well, I think that we have grown up um, as inhabitants of Britain and as inheritors of you know sort of imperial mindset. I suppose that Britain's at the centre of the map, and and that's you know that's um, that's a kind of worldview from inherited from the Victorian period. Um, in the Middle Ages, Jerusalem was the centre of the map. Britain was at the furthest western edge you know it it's this tiny island in the western ocean it's got no important uh cultural heritage in the medieval um view of things and so there's this real uh sense that they need to connect themselves to the classical and biblical worlds the the characters and dramas of of, what, of things happening in the center of the map um and so the founders of uh, the founding, the founder of the Britons is a Trojan called Brutus. He's the great grandson of Aeneas, um, the same Aeneas to uh, to found Rome and all of that, um, and to flee Troy. Uh, there's Scotta, the um, founder of the Scotty, the Irish who become the Scottish. Uh, she's the daughter in the, in the um, mythological tradition of Ramesses the second, who is the same pharaoh to have. Um, a big dispute with Moses. She marries a Greek a Greek prince called Gaethelos. So that's they give rise to the Gaels and the Scotti. And in the same way, uh, Snorri Sturluson, in writing his Norse mythology in the 12th century, he's an Icelandic author. If we're going, let's let's just go with that simple way of expressing it for now. He writes this very um, otherworldly um, mythological text, but he precedes it with a prologue that says, um, actually. Uh, these are this is just the story of some great mortals who did such amazing things they were remembered more as gods than as men but they were descended from Priam and he lists how uh, Thor um, he lives in Thrace he's the king of Thrace he marries a prophet, prophetess called Sif or Sibyl but he says in the north we call her Sif and uh, and their progeny lead to Woden or Odin so there's this you know real uh, impression that these northwestern storytellers are eager to um, uh, to demonstrate to the reader that they come from these these biblical and classical heartlands and inherit that authority. And those connections to the wider world, and indeed the necessity of that connection to the wider world, I think is, is something that that we have we have lost for the previous century and may need to to return to. So one of the manuscripts that I talk about in the book is this wonderful manuscript called the St. Cuthbert Gospel. 
And it's this tiny, tiny little book. It's only 10 centimeters by 14 centimeters. And I always say about it that its tiny size betrays nothing of its status as a cultural monolith because it's still in its original binding, which was made in the early 8th century, which makes it the earliest intact European book. And one of the things that's really fantastic about this tiny, tiny little book is that when you examine the small details of it, you suddenly get a sense of Northern England in this period in the early 8th century as a place that is connected to this incredibly sophisticated intellectual network across Europe and beyond. So the stitching method, the way that the booklets that make up the manuscript are sewn together, I mean, this is very nerdy detail, but it's a really important one, is a, a stitching method that comes from Coptic Egypt. And if you look at the design on the front, the embossed leather design on the front of the manuscript, it's a design that comes from the Near East, and you can find an almost identical design on the doors of a church, a Coptic church that dates from the 5th or 6th century in Cairo. And there are other little details like the spacing between the words, which is a, a convention from Irish manuscripts, and the exemplar, i.e. the copy of the text that is that makes its way into this manuscript, comes from Italy. And so we have this wonderful sense of this book that is created by all of these diverse influences from way beyond England's shores. And we shouldn't be seeing... Um, medieval Britain as these kind of isolated islands at the edge of the known world. They're part of this lively international network, this exchange of books and goods and ideas. And I think that's a, that's a really timeless story. So in this tiny monolith, we have this bringing together of these hugely disparate influences. And that's something that, Amy, I know that you have spoken in the past about the fact that our identity has needed to draw on these symbols. Where else do we see these disparate symbols from around the world showing what a, an important and well-connected nation we are? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's um, it's, a, it's well known that, you know, when the major European countries were vying for imperial uh, legitimacy or imperial supremacy in the late 18th, early 19th centuries, they, they quote the classical world through the through their architecture through their great museums um especially you know the british museum in this greek revival style becomes a repository for all sorts of cultures and yet it sits under this uh this aesthetic and this um british name you know it's um it's fascinating and so really nothing's changed when you when you look at um at how how these myths operate in the middle ages taking their authority from the eastern heartlands um there's, you know, you then realise it echoes down the ages and is constantly revived. And what about that quintessential mass of stone that people often think about when they think about visiting the British Isles or England in particular, Stonehenge? Well, Stonehenge is fascinating. I mean, there's there's this you know, alternative. When we go past Stonehenge now, we we might think, hmm, you know, Neolithic uh, communities coming together at the solstice, having brought these stones from Wales on the Marlborough Downs and um and that's the story we apply to them now. And one of the things I found so inspiring about researching Storyland is realising that all of these monuments have a palimpsest of, 
of previous stories, previous histories, which are now forgotten. And I don't, I don't know why we feel like we have, we should dismiss them because we've got a more true one now. You know, if we, we think it's true, it probably is. But, you know, in the Middle Ages, Stonehenge was believed to be a monument erected to commemorate the massacre of um, a group of British nobles by Saxon invaders, as they saw it. And, um, and it's put up during the reign of a king called Aurelius Ambrosius, who is the uncle of King Arthur. And it ultimately becomes his grave too, and the grave of Uther Pendragon. The, it doesn't actually, it isn't built there and then. It doesn't, it isn't sort of hewn from the, from the nearby rocks. I think there was an understanding that these stones weren't local. Um, and in Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, he just says that, uh, that the child Merlin says, I know where you're going to find um, a monument to, to commemorate the, this massacre. It's standing on a hill, a mountain called Calarus, mythical mountain in Ireland. Uh, it's a stone circle called the Giant's Dance. And it was brought before the flood from remotest Africa. And the stones have healing properties. And it was brought by giants. And he just sort of says this. And then the story moves on. And I was really captivated by this idea of these pre-deluge giants, you know, quarrying stones in remotest Africa. And why on earth they would then feel like taking them all the way to Ireland um, to be put up on this mountain. So the opening story of, of um, Storyland is about this, this journey and, uh, and the arrival of the stones in Ireland. That idea of, of Stonehenge as a palimpsest and also as you know, that it's history has history, that by looking at the interpretations through the ages of what it was and where it came from, those interpretations themselves tell as much about the culture at the time. There's an early Neolithic chambered long barrow in the Berkshire Downs called Wayland Smithy. And it has been called Wayland Smithy since at least the 10th century when it appears in a charter as Wayland as Smithan. And that refers to a Germanic semi-magical figure, uh, Wayland Goldsmith, who uh, whose story circulates in Old Norse texts, and we can see from this name applied to this prehistoric monument that the Germanic tribes who are migrating to uh, and to Britain and forming England in those centuries of the early Middle Ages were applying uh, their stories to the monuments they found in their new territory, which I just think is mind-blowingly interesting. There are these historical, physical artefacts that, that we see around us, whether that's Wayland Smithy, Stonehenge, or even these very tiny and delicate manuscripts. Um, but you have both stuck your hands into the artisanship of the past. Um, Amy, in Storyland, you're a phenomenally talented printmaker uh, with these uh, really moving illustrations of these stories. And also, Mary, I, the photographs in Hidden Hands of you making parchment and that uh, return to, again, the very physical skill of turning. And you, you write about the, the poem in there of, of how you know, Christ's skin being taken to write a Bible on. How does it feel to get physically connected with these these skills of the past? Mary, if I can go to you first about your, your time, essentially, was it skinning a goat? Uh, I can't say I skinned the goat oh, myself. Sorry, the goat was pre-skinned, maybe shaving it, I think. Sorry. If I could go to scholar Mary Wellesley with her take on skinning a goat. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so it was a really wonderful moment when I went to William Cowley's, which is the last parchment maker um, in the British Isles and, and pretty much the only place in the world that still makes parchment in this traditional way. And it gave me a real appreciation of the sheer value and the number of man hours that went into making the manuscripts that I work with so frequently. Um, it's a very elaborate process to make parchment. Um, you have to take the skin of a domestic animal, either a sheep or a calf, and it has to be soaked in quicklime for a long time. And then you have to remove the hair and then it gets soaked again and then it gets stretched over a frame and worked again with a knife. Um, it's it's a laborious process. But at the end of that laborious process, what you get is this really fantastic uh, writing material. It's it's milky smooth. It's it's flexible. And importantly, it's it's really durable. Um, if you look at something like the Codex Sinaiaticus. Um, that's a manuscript made sort of between 325 to 375. It's, a, it's an early partial copy of the New Testament. And, you know, it's really in pretty mint condition, given how old it is. And this is a real, this tells you something very important about why parchment is such an extraordinary material. And I really came away with this new appreciation of its of its of its worth but yes you mentioned there um a poem that i talk about called the um the long charter of christ which is this incredible middle english poem which purports to be a legal charter granted by christ to mankind and in it it talks about how the charter is written on the skin of christ and i just had this wonderful sense of imagine what it was like for a medieval devotional reader reading that poem in a manuscript written on parchment, this idea, and then I was thinking of the the scriptural text, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, the sheer fleshiness of the text in front of you, and there's something that, to me, is what's so magical about manuscripts. This, when you're sitting in the silence of a special collections reading room and turning the pages of a medieval manuscript, what you have is this extraordinary visual smellable, tangible encounter with the past, and more importantly, with the people who made the object in front of you, whether that's the parchment maker or the scribe, or more distantly, the author. The way that you talk about the the physical effort required uh, and how that translates into value, the, the idea of knowing that the very ink that I would be using was worth more than I was likely to be paid for the entire year. I cannot I cannot understand the level of trepidation required to to be a scribe. Yeah, which is why it took years, sometimes even decades for manuscripts to be completed. And particularly at the, in the earlier part of the medieval period um, with manuscripts like, for example, the Lindisfarne Gospels, which is um, a manuscript I talk about in the book, made by uh, Bishop Eodfrith, who was the bishop of, of the Lindisfarne community off the coast of Northumbria. And there's be, scholars debate, you know, exactly when and how this manuscript was made, but there's a really wonderful suggestion that perhaps he retreated to an island hermitage during Lent every year in order to work on this manuscript. You know, this was, it was an act of God. It was a devotional labor. Um, and Cassiodorus, who's a sort of um, Roman Christian writer, talks about this idea of, of the scribe that every brush stroke, pen stroke made by the scribe is a wound on the back of the devil. You know, that he figures the work of the scribe as 
a this important devotional labor but but also in this kind of martial vein that the that the pen itself is a weapon against uh, against evil and that's it's so far away from our conception of how writing works and um indeed just the production of books you know it's a very very different thing and of course i i also talk about books produced towards the end of the medieval period where which are produced in um, secular contexts professional workshops where you know it's a very different culture at play but i think it's really lovely to see to think about those two different cultures side by side because it just makes us think afresh about the value of the written word and the value of the written word in these priceless artifacts. At my Hindu a few years ago, a friend of mine, knowing that I had uh, an interest in medieval manuscripts, more than that, um, she put together a quiz which was work out um, which quotations were taken from my article on how to make a medieval manuscript for the British Library blog and uh, and which were from a Cosmo article on how to shave your legs. <laughs> And it was actually the people were getting very confused. It was like stretch, stretch uh, skin over a stump and and scrape with a line. You know, it was brilliant. It was one of the best Hindu exercises I've ever heard of, I think. So kudos to her. And the other point I wanted to make was a uh, second one was when I was at the British Library working with Mary, one of the I, I catalogued a um, a ninth century manuscript that contained a text by Horace and it had a 12th century repair and that really just struck me as you know when you have these moments we think oh gosh time is a continuum you know this there's actually when that 12th century repair was made this book was already hundreds of years old it was ancient in the 12th century all of those moments of conservation and attention that have brought these so many of these manuscripts to us other others just survive in a cupboard but you know not all of them um the third thing i just wanted to read an excerpt from an anglo-saxon riddle uh about the production of manuscripts. So it's by it's translated here by Paul Franklin Baum and it's found in the Exeter book, which is one of my favorite manuscripts and I urge listeners to look it up if they don't know it already. Uh, so I'll just read an excerpt of this riddle. An enemy came and took away my life and my strength also in the word, then wetted me, dipped me in water, then took me thence, placed me in the sun where I lost all my hair the knife's edge cut me its impurities ground away fingers folded me and the bird's delight i think that's the quill with swift drops made frequent traces over the brown surface swallowed the tree dye and that's referring there to oak gall ink with a measure of liquid traveling across me left a dark track a good man covered me with protecting boards which stretched skin over me adorned me with gold then the work of smiths decorated me with strands of woven wire. So there you've got the, the making of the binding. It's being covered with leather. It's being decorated with metal. Uh, so you've got a treasure bound manuscript from kind of goat to a to finished book in this in this riddle. Um, I just thought that was lovely. And, and uh, yeah, worth sharing. Yeah, the transformations from sort of earthy materials to something so precious through the application of skill and of work. Storyland would have stood alone as pure prose, but the illustrations in your book, like the thing I remember from doing this is how indelible your marks are and how considered, how slow that then made me feel I had to be in order to, you know, choose which line to to cut from the liner because once that space is there it, it it's there you cannot undo it 
And I wondered how that felt as a process, sort of thinking about your work as a printmaker. That actual act of creation doesn't have a control Z. It doesn't have a delete key. The the whole book was born of these illustrations. I was finishing off my PhD um, on a manuscript uh, at the British Library, Edgerton MS3028, for those who want to look it up, the full facsimile is online, digitised. Um, and it's it's a, a very heavily abridged French, uh, so Anglo-Norman French verse retelling of the history of the kings of Britain, the origin myth of Britain, with um, it would have had giants in and all that stuff, but the beginning's missing, unfortunately. Um, and it's, it's <laughs> prolifically illustrated, which is very unusual for this text. Um, and so I, um, I became interested in, in producing my own series of illustrations. I knew that it hadn't been much illustrated in the Middle Ages, hardly yeah. at all since then. Um, there are some um, very uh, simple woodcut illustrations of it. Um, and I, I knew that I wanted to do it in lino cut. So, uh, so I started off with three. It felt like real procrastination. You know, I'd be writing up my thesis in the mornings um, and then running to the studio to take a proof of what I'd been working on the night before. And um, and it started off with Merlin, the child Merlin, guiding the building of Stonehenge. Diana sending Brutus to Albion. That's the goddess Diana sending the Trojan Brutus to this island in the sea, uninhabited, but for a few giants. Um, and then Gog Magog, the, the giant, the leader giant of, of um, the giants of Albion, being thrown uh, off the cliffs into the sea somewhere near Totnes. Um, and that series then grew dramatically. But um, the lino cut really appealed to me uh, because it's got this kind of well, there's there's the terror that you're describing, and I think terror is essential to creativity. Um, I don't know how people do these kind of over the shoulder videos to put on their Instagram when they're making something because you know I just I'm constantly convinced that the next thing I do will ruin it all, and I think that's really quite a good thing. You know, I think we should all be on the edge of our seats uh, when we're making stuff, and. Um, so that was one reason. The uh, the other one was I just absolutely loved the aesthetic. These these large areas of black because I was working with black ink, kind of in the school of Chris Pig, an artist who um who I work with, who also makes great use of negative space in his work, um, seemed to me to reflect. Ah. So oh, sorry. <laughs> that's that's a, a child. Um, it seems also to me to reflect the way in which these uh, these myths have a lot of negative space we're not quite sure of the setting it's set in a in a hazy mythical past we you know we don't know exactly what the costume would have been because it's you know made up and um and you know, what the landscape might have looked like and so so this seemed to be the perfect medium to to um, illustrate these these hazy mist of timey stories yes. This sort of this is terrible, terrible radio. I'm very sorry, uh, but the shadow of the giant and the sparks flying upwards, and a small figure in the foreground with their shield and sword, and how those you know what comes from those lines. The book Storyland felt like an opportunity to revel in past uh, craft. You know, the making of stories, the making of manuscripts, of metalwork in the story of Wayland, um, and it felt like. If I had, it, I didn't want to illustrate it digitally. So yeah, it seemed it seemed like to to honour the sources that that are that inspired Storyland, the illustrations needed to be in a in a physical medium. 
And that's, I think, something that books that we can enjoy from books now when so much is available virtually to go into a bookshop and buy a good quality hardback that's been illustrated um, in a with a you know physical medium like lino cut that is that is a kind of holistic object um, that that meant a lot to me with this project. Um, I mean, right now we've just got the second, the first reprint through and um, and there's been this slight sort of, I've been really enjoying the back and forth between um, John Riley, uh, our publisher, um, and the other members of the Quirkus team discussing minutiae of, of the black ink and how, and, and I feel as though, you know, I've been involved in a bookmaking process that reflects the kind of processes I was trying to pull up, pick apart in the course of my PhD studies about a medieval manuscript and what a privilege that is to be part of this long tradition. I mean, that fo- that makes it a perfect opportunity to follow on to the bit of the show that we usually call Shit I Wish I'd Know. You mentioned earlier, both Mary and Amy, the idea that this um, relatively modern myth of the sole lone genius creator is... Uh, has always been and certainly remains complete and utter nonsense. Well, who are the people that you have met through this process of making your books that are in, now in your in your tribe? I mean, Mary, if I can go to you first, who who are you so glad that you've met because you didn't realise you needed one of these in your life? Oh my God! Um, well, anyone who was involved with the editorial process of this book. Um, from John Riley, my editor at Quercus, um, also my editor in the US for basic books. Um, the copy editors, I had a different copy edit for the American and the UK edition. Uh, I just, I'm in awe of their attention to detail and how wonderful it was to, to kind of, um, what I really loved was when the copy edit was done, uh, it, the document was in Microsoft Word and um, I was then having these conversations with the copy editors using the comment function and I was thinking, gosh, this is actually a wonderfully medieval thing to do because uh, medieval manuscripts that are glossed uh, use the marginal space to comment of, on the, the, the main text itself and I suddenly realised uh, I had this kind of connection to the people in the past who worked as glossators and I saw how the margin could become this place of of exchange and argument and and comedy. You know, we were joking about different things. Um, but I, I mainly I'm just so grateful for the people who um, pulled me up on all my examples of idiocy, of which there were many in the book. Yeah, I mean, it is. I was surprised with the first book quite how many people were involved from the get go. Um, and yeah, it is wonderful to know that you are not alone in getting this uh, text in front of an audience and that there are other eyes and other hands uh, working in the margins to to help. And how about you, Amy? So obviously design is a huge element of your book. Um, but yeah, who is in your in your squad, in your crew for getting this something that you look at it and you go, that's a damn good book because it is. Um, well, there was a Mary very kindly introduced me to Dan Jones, the historian whose um, whose book Powers and Thrones has recently been published, published on the same day as Storyland, in fact. And uh, and I went to see him, and we uh, with my prints on this idea that they could be a book, and we laid them all out, looked at them all. They have A three um, images, um, 
and there was no kind of order to them. I'd been thinking of them in terms of geography. You know, they all apply, all of my images apply to a, somewhere in, in Britain. And he just said, well, could you tell it chronologically? And it was like, boom, 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 boom. I suddenly realized, yeah, because that one is in about 500 BC, you know, if we're going to think about it in that way. And, and this one is definitely, you know, 10th century. And in terms of the fiction of the stories, they are they are very rooted in in time, albeit a medieval timeline where you know, creation was 6,000 years ago. Um, so often you realize that the simplest solution is often the best. And I'd been overcomplicating uh, my ideas on the structure and and that moment I, I will you know I owe him big time for that just can you tell it chronologically oh yes that's it and so that kind of gave rise to the to the superstructure of storyland and this is this big overarching narrative the other person is Chris Pig the artist who um who I've gone to with my lino cuts who has said absolutely you know sometimes there's that moment where I like to liken it to when you're trying on clothes and you've put something on and you're going yeah I think I like it yeah I think if you're saying I think I like it don't get it you know you know when it's right but it's the same with with illustrations and sometimes I would be thinking I'd be going I think I like it I think it works and I'd take it to Chris and he'd go no no that doesn't work at all and I thought yeah I thought so and that would just we'd just chuck it out never look at it again it's over it's dead <laughs> um and so that was wonderful to have that kind of mentor he likes to say minotaur uh <laughs> um, to work with somebody that's going to be brutally honest about your work um but uh will also tell you when you when you've nailed it and uh and say yeah. there that's a i'm very grateful for him and of course for mary without whom this uh, book would certainly not exist <laughs> the, yes formidable <laughs> not true this book would have made its way into the world no matter what well, it is a beautiful addition to the world uh, and as is Hidden Hands. And I'm so grateful to both of you for having been on the podcast today. Um, Amy, where can people find you online? They can find me on Twitter and on Instagram. On Twitter, I am Amy underscore Historia. And on Instagram, I'm Historia underscore Prince. Uh, that's a reference to the Historia Reagan Britanniae by Geoffrey of Monmouth, which I've mentioned a lot, the history of the kings of Britain. Uh, I think I would be nowhere without Geoffrey of Monmouth, actually. You know, this 12th century cleric <laughs> um, to whom I owe so much. Thank you, Geoffrey. And Gerald of Wales would be so cross. He he was a contemporary of Geoffrey of Monmouth. He also wrote chronicles and uh, and sort of um, historical style texts. And he, he says there was a man possessed of demons. And whenever he um, was near things that were dishonest he would see sort of demons dancing around it and he saw demons dancing on a copy of Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings I love the idea that in in Amy's Oscars acceptance speech I'd like to thank Gerald of Wales and Geoffrey of Monmouth my crew I'm him as having like this Kanye moment of like I'm going to stop you here yeah you know yeah <laughs> I mean Monmouth is great but, but, but yeah his but, text is full of know. lies and the demons dance upon it so deep shout out to those my boys yeah <laughs> and how about you mary people who want to be in the in the mary crew where can they find you online yeah so i'm at mary wellesley on twitter and mary underscore wellesley on instagram zero zero filtered images of me on holiday loads of manuscript lols 
So for all of your, your manuscript and Geoffrey of Monmouth and Gerald of Wales needs, those are the people you need to follow on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you once again, both of you, for being on Pod. help us by rating, reviewing and sharing Nonfic Pod. Every little helps to build our audience and that means we get to share fantastic non-fiction with more people just like you. And it helps us to keep bringing you the greatest authors and the hottest reads. 